Assalamu alaikum and welcome to episode 7 of the Hijabi Culture podcast. My name's Halima, creator and founder of Hijabi Culture. I start every episode off with, I'm so excited to get into this episode. Um, but this episode, I, when I was editing it, it came to me that I'm not going to say that when I start this one. I'm just going to throw you straight into it. So here it goes. Hello everyone, my name is Amin Atik. And I'm a poet and artist based in Liverpool. Yeah. So I asked Amina to join me on the podcast today because she's done some really inspiring work. And she's mentioned that she's a poet. Um, and Amina, she won, she was part of the BBC um, poetry group, weren't you, for your po- um, poem on A Letter to My Mother? Yeah, that's right. So the BBC Words First um, was kind of like three rounds of a competition. Um, and when you got to the final round, becoming the finalist, you got to basically be commissioned. So the six poets got commissioned to write uh, a le- kind of like something that's inspiring to them about the future. So I decided to write something, um, kind of a letter to my mother. And when I was listening to that and watching it, it was really inspiring. Um, but do you want to talk a bit about your inspiration behind that poem and what made it, the, what gave it that impact that it had? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, one of the biggest themes in poetry is relationships. And historically, when we read poetry or any type of literature, we understand relationships through people, relationships through place relationships with objects so I guess for me um, I wanted to create a piece of you know a poem that kind of like you know I mean the word mother can mean many things it could be you know uh, a mother figure in our family uh, my mother who birthed me or it could be you know my motherland or mother nature it could be so I guess for me it was kind of kind of using the word mother as a metaphor uh, but using kind of like real life uh, memories that me and my mother shared when we were in Yemen. Um, and yeah, so I really enjoyed writing that. Um, and I, I think it was that was the first time I actually started to write from kind of like a, a personal lens of relationship. Um, because for me, growing up writing poetry, kind of, I've always wanted to protect myself in terms of what I'm sharing to the audience. Um, so it was nice to be vulnerable and to feel safe to write that. And do you think that that specific poem has changed the way that you look at poetry now um, in comparison to what you did before? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think for me it's about when do you give yourself permission? Because at the end of the day, you know, you, you can be a writer where you write for yourself and nobody else gets to see it. But when you're writing in a world where things are then shared, especially when they're shared over social media, you know, I think for me it's that sense of responsibility, like the care of duty for myself. Also, like, you know, how what, what am I trying to present here for an audience? How is an audience going to respond to this? So I guess for me, like, especially as a Muslim, you know, for me it's about spreading compassion. It's about, you know, bringing kind of kindness through my work, um, but also representing Muslim women, you know, in you know, in that in that good light. Um, so 
definitely it didn't change anything I guess poetry for me is about growth so for me it's like nothing ever changes but definitely everything has an impact or influences you know the growth um so looking back I guess for me is like where I am now um and not only just writing but getting other people to write especially young people and getting them to think about their relationships and what relationships mean to them and also you know we the the most mistake we make is we forget ourselves like what is the relationship with ourselves um and that's probably one of the hardest pieces that you'll ever write (laughs) yeah but I think you did yours so well um it just came across and I think the way that you spoke when you did it it just worked so well but you mentioned that you work with other people and help them write their poetry and I know that you did that with school children was it yeah so um part of my kind of as a freelance artist which means you know I'm I depend full-time on making work through art through the cultural sector and the creative sector so um part of that is also you know sharing that space with young people adults so um and it's also important for me to work with young people um especially from marginalized groups because I feel like I can definitely share some things that I learned how writing and creative thinking definitely kind of gave me a sense of expression it taught me about self-belief it taught me about resilience confidence um and I want to share that with young people especially now with the pandemic a lot of young people are struggling emotionally and how they're expressing themselves so I think um, I'm really passionate about making sure that other young people are growing and finding kind of their purpose through writing. Yeah, I think that's so important. Um, and if we talk about poetry and expressing yourself and what is it like um, being a hijab-wearing woman in this poetry industry and in the industry that you work in? What's that like? Oh, what's that like? It's It's interesting, I think. I've had the most amazing 10 years of my life and I will never like it's been 10 years since I've been in this industry and I started very young but I've I've had an incredible journey like and you know one organization in particular I started as a young writer just a young writer like as a group and now I'm you know I'm employed by them every month to work on different projects so I guess for me, it's like, you know, I've had an incredible journey and I've and I've bonded with local and national organisations and I still work with them. Um, and some organisations have taken me under their wing, under different development schemes. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. However, you know, of course, part of that journey has also been challenging. Uh, there was, you know, sometimes, you know, as a Muslim woman, especially when you are, you have a Scouse accent like mine. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes you can be tokenised and um, and you can be kind of like a tick box. And But I guess for me, it's like, it's really hard to prove that sometimes because I guess some organisations mean well, but they just want you to represent everyone and everything. So I guess I had to grow up really quickly in this industry um, because I felt like I was representing everyone and it, it did feel like, a burden sometimes um 
so yeah how old were you when you started in the industry about 15 oh wow so that's really young and was this something that you saw going forward did you think i'm going to be a poet or i'm going to be in the creative sector was that always in the back of your mind it's, it's so difficult to to remember because the thing is it's like where does your journey start right it's mm. like when did you learn to write but I, I guess for me it's about when did I start to write with purpose because I was writing even earlier than that. I was writing from the age of 12 or even younger but I guess when I started to write with purpose as if I wanted to become a poet I probably think was when I was 15 um and you know at 15 I I did experience you know systematic racism and Islamophobia by the police and public members which resulted in you know receiving a three-year criminal record because I wasn't firstly I was a child second of all you know I couldn't defend myself because I was a child second of all I didn't know my rights because I was a child (laughs) the fourth thing is like you know when you become you know when you're a child and you become the predator and the suspect you know you start to question the world especially as children you know we see police officers and people you know public members like you know people that work for the you know any type of public service and it's like you see them as heroes mm. and I guess for me it was like as a child I, I saw police officers as people that would protect me but when that situation happened I realized that though I didn't know what the language was I didn't know about racism or the language of hate crime or Islamophobia but I didn't know all I knew it was a feeling the Mm. feeling of feeling different and that never lies to you the feeling in you never lies to you and I guess because poetry is so huge on emotion poetry literally emotion sits in the core of poetry so I guess for me poetry was the thing that I was drawn to, I was attracted to, because for me, though I didn't have the right language to articulate, you know, academically what was happening, all I knew was I could express myself through poetry to explain how I was feeling. Um, so at the age of 15, I guess, when that situation happened, um, even though it was wrong, <laughs> and I should have never, ever been put in a cell, interviewed without an adult, um, and just to give a background, um, the reason why I was in a cell is because a bus driver one day decided to physically assault me and, um, you know, verbally shout the word, the P word. And in that and in that moment, I kind of reacted and defended myself as he pushed me. Um, but then that resulted in me being violent to him and he got away with it. Um but obviously looking back I think for me that's where poetry had a purpose because now I wasn't writing just to write I was writing because I wanted to make a statement I was angry I was frustrated and I wanted to understand why Muslim women were treated differently why 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 do people look at us differently you know and I think because that happened to you at such a young age and 15 is one of those ages where if something happens to you, it's going to stick with you for the rest of your life. You're at that yeah. age where you kind of, you're not, not a child anymore, but you're not anywhere close to adulthood, but it's a very ripe age. And I think 
that's probably shaped a huge part of your life now it's impacted how you perceive the world and how you perceive individuals and their roles and how people speak to you and it'll always come back to that one moment of course yeah no I mean um poetry is the lens of you know of the lens of your past and I guess that will definitely always shape me and it will always shake my voice you know it will literally shake the guts in me because I'm still angry I'm very angry but I'm also angry because it's still happening you know, I, I live in Liverpool. Merseyside has one of the highest rates of sit, stop and search. And for me, it's like, well, you know, this happened to me. And But there are many young, especially young men from black and brown communities who are literally accused to be, you know, the suspects when they are just children. So it's like, you know, you're, you feel like you've been punished by the system from a very young age. So how are you going to integrate and behave or be well behaved? if you're constantly being punished for something that you never did. So I guess for me, now that I work with young people, definitely, that has definitely played an impact on what I do now because now I understand the system. And, you know, and for me, it's not about getting up in the morning and saying, I want to change it because sometimes that can be, it's not a one-person job. But I also feel like sometimes it's like, okay, I want young people to become resilient, to have self-belief and confidence. These are the things that I didn't have growing up these are the things that I had to learn from these situations so I want young people to have these things through just kind of like writing through writing about their lives in a way that is positive and you know that is honest to them yeah I think that's so important I think when we work with younger people we always need to give them something that we didn't have at that age to give them the skills and I think those skills are really important. Resilience is such a key one because I feel like as a Muslim woman or just a Muslim in general, it's becoming so much harder to live in this country, to live in this continent. I think the world is moving so quickly and we're somehow still the enemy. And I don't think that's changing. I think it's just becoming more and more indoctrinated in so many different minds across the world. And these young children, there's sometimes I feel like there's no hope for them they can't be Muslim or they can't hold on to their identity because that might harm them more than it could protect them no of course and um, we, we see this all the time but also you know young people are also young people they also have other things to think about whether it's exams GCSE relationships whether it's you know well-being whether it's you know starting you know young women starting their menstrual cycle you know muslim kids also go through other things too (laughs) you know and it's like not you know as well as them being muslim they're also children yeah and they're also human beings that will go through problems that the whole world other children have across the world and um so i guess sometimes we forget that you know because we're fighting such a big battle sometimes to be accepted as as muslim young people that sometimes we forget we also have other stuff that goes on in our home lives or school. Um, so it's yeah. that point of where, when do I become an activist or when do I start this thing that this process of 
figuring out my identity but then actually having the time to be a young person or live my life when you can find a balance between the two because sometimes I find that I go to work and I'm just there like I'm the only hijab wearing Muslim woman in this room and then I come home and I'm like I was the only hijab wearing Muslim woman there and what what did I achieve from that what did I show people about myself and it can be quite tiring trying to decipher all these parts of you but when it's so heavy when do you just get to be yourself that not the hijab wearing woman in that room that she sits in for eight hours a day but when do I get to just be me and live with that of course yeah I mean I think that's these are the things right like I don't have the answers I definitely don't have the answers but I guess I guess it's an individual thing where like okay what can I do to build my own confidence you know far away from these environments so that I can be you know a better version of myself um but I think that can come from you know our communities our masjids our you know community leaders you know and that's you know I guess for me I I I aspire to be that you know I aspire to be the next community leader within my Muslim community so that I can kind of like you know invest time and and funding into these spaces to be like okay let's work together to empower our young people so that when they do come out of their own communities and they go into places where they might feel isolated, they know how to deal with these situations. Um, So I think education is really important, like bringing, you know, education and our rights and understanding policy law and how we influence policy is important. Um, And then the other thing is, I think, you know, when you understand, like, how the system is structured definitely that makes an impact in terms of your confidence and that way you're able to exercise your rights um but then second of all it's like sometimes I don't mind being the only Muslim person in the room because then it kind of gives me the kind of like people see you which is good especially in the sector that I work in in the arts as a freelancer it's really hard to be noticed so as a Muslim Yemeni scouser, you're definitely mm-hmm. noticed and people don't forget you. So for me, it's definitely like I use it as an advantage sometimes. And I think that comes from positive thinking because for me, it's like I'm going to have a good day today. And people, if people are looking at me, then it's because I'm fabulous. Yeah. yeah. And I think for me, that's part of my healing process because at the end of the day, and yes, I would say now the majority of people, when they look at you, they're probably looking at you thinking, why are you here? Are you lost? Or you're not meant to be here? Or they're looking at you in a very like curious way. And it does make you feel uncomfortable. But I guess I made the choice. <laughs> so I made the choice that if I am going to get out, out of my home, outside of my community, into a place where I feel I might feel isolated, I need to change the way I'm thinking. Of course, that comes with its boundaries because if anyone is physical, verbal, then of course, this is where I defend myself, I exercise my rights. Um, yeah, I think even though I might be talking about this in a very positive way, it's not, it's, it's not easy to do. It's no, exciting. definitely not. And I think, I don't want you to talk about it too much if it's hard or, but being in that cell at the age of 15, how did that, and it was because you were wearing a hijab that you were physically assaulted. How did that change your perception of hijab, or did it have an impact on that? Um, I, 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 to be honest, I was a bit confused. I was a bit angry, like 
with God a little bit because I was kind of thinking about like why I've got really funny memories about wearing it and like really good memories you know me and my mother went shopping to buy my hijab and I remember wearing it for the first day and I was so happy um and I had different color hijabs so you know I just loved I loved like experimenting with it and trying different styles and ones that fit right with my face now I'm so fussy with the right cotton I have to get like <laughs> the right cotton hijab <laughs> what's so, that cotton called I said I'm just gonna be 100% cotton <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you just know how it feels how it looks um and yeah so I guess I guess for me it was really like when I was in that cell I started thinking about these like memories like you know I had a really good memory of the hijab why is it now that I'm being punished isn't the hijab meant to be there to protect me so I guess that confused me because in my own community within my family and my I you know I felt proud wearing it but when I go outside of my community and people treat you differently you start to question like why though so you start to kind of like hold this like shame or guilt however you know I am my mother's daughter and my mother is very resilient so when I came out of that cell you know I could not see myself taking off the hijab because for me even though definitely you know the hijab is an obligation and you know it's um, it's about strengthening your faith and also but also the hijab is for me it became kind of like this res- you know, I started to become kind of like this resistance thing. Like, I started becoming an activist with my hijab. And I guess for me now, when I when I talk about this story, definitely as Muslim women, especially those who wear the hijab, we need to be open for these conversations to actually say, okay, we we need to accept that people wear the hijab for different reasons, and that's okay. Um, because of our life experiences, and we need to be a bit more compassionate why we wear the hijab, how we wear it, what's our journey with it, what's our relationship with it. Like, when people look at me, they would never, never think at 15 I was arrested and put into a cell. Never, because of just, people just don't believe it. I don't I don't fit the description of a criminal, wherever that may be. But, because, I, I don't mean to jump in here, but when people see you and they see you, you with a hijab on, they don't think that you got that in you or you could ever be portrayed in that way because we're quiet people we just get on we don't really attract attention to ourselves of course but then I also think it's because you don't fit the description of what a criminal may look like so what happens mm. is that but then it's like it just shows you that the system can criminalize anyone yeah and right now we know that you know young muslim men are criminalized all the time for having a beard or wearing Islamic clothing or but then it becomes a fashion statement or because an influencer calls it modest, it's celebrated. And I guess for me it's like the hypocrisy in the West is so, so like <laughs> it's almost funny because I, I think sometimes it's like it just doesn't make much sense. Like how can you celebrate one for being modest? But because I put the word hijab in front of it, you're now excluding me. I think the West has so much to answer for. I think just like just to go off topic slightly, but with um, Qatar and the World Cup, 
I am sick to death of hearing about it, but it's just so hypocritical what they're saying about one nation, but yet there's, they're the ones throwing migrants into the water. They're not giving access to life. They're doing so many horrible things themselves. We had a prime minister who was like that, like Boris Johnson. It's so hypocritical. How can we say other things about other countries? And all these other countries, they were built by slavery. We wouldn't even take down a statue of a slave owner. And yet we're crying about something that's going on in Qatar. And it's just the West's hypocrisy is so deep-rooted in everything that they do. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, you know, the Qatari World Cup, you know, the World Cup being hosted by Qatar is, you know, it's uh, the whole world is watching. And I guess, of course, you know, Qatar is in the public eye and it is going to face criticism for its laws or the way it's doing things or handling things. But I guess you're right. Like, where is that coming from? Where is that hypocrisy coming from? And I guess the West boycotting it and things like that, I, I just, for me, it's like, and the language that they to describe it and I guess for me yes of course any country has flaws and can be improved whether it's like legal laws or you know human laws or whatever but I guess for me it's like if you're going to criticize it then are you criticizing it because of its flaws or you criticize it because you're Islamophobic yeah um and I guess it it it, it is it is showing like (laughs) but I guess um, I watched the ceremony and I thought it was so beautiful. It was really, really beautiful. It was very welcoming, and it was it just put you know my faith Islam in a very positive light. It, it is what as I ex- expected, and yet it was um, I think the especially the art and the creative creativity was just absolutely breathtaking. Sorry, I took you off topic about your um, the hypocrisy of the West and uh, modest fashion. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, moving forward, um, I'm really interested in, okay, there are a lot of issues, you know, that we are being excluded. However, I feel like it's a sense of duty where I do feel like a lot of Muslim women who are leaders in their communities and are doing amazing work, they're always working alone. Um, and in isolation because they feel like they have to do it all so I guess for me you know for the listeners it's kind of say to you you know if you are a Muslim woman especially wearing a hijab and you feel a bit isolated but you want to do good work it's about I think connecting with each other because I think in solidarity it's about being visible it's about making noise it's about doing work together it's about sharing and, and sharing dialogue and I think moving forward, that's my focus. Like, as much as I want to talk about exclusion and look at, like, policy and influence and policy, I think there is actually, you know what, we have a lot of healing to do together. It's not easy being an immigrant, bilingual, and then Muslim, and then trying to integrate work, study in a country that makes it difficult sometimes. Yeah, and I think this leads quite nicely into your Hijab Speaks conference and what you did with that. Do you want to tell the listeners about that? So the Hijab Speaks uh, project was kind of like a research and development. So I wanted to kind of like bring Muslim women from Liverpool together to basically share conversation around the Hijab. And it was exactly that. We met for like coffee, cake and, uh, you know, a, a bit of lunch. 
Um, we had a few questions set for them so that we can basically guide the conversation. Um, and that was great because, like, you know, so many things came out of that dialogue. And also, it was it was a networking opportunity. You know, I saw loads of the Muslim sisters, like, sharing their numbers with each other, sharing what they do in work and how they can connect. So that is amazing because, for me, it's not just about let's just fix the problems. It's more about how do we connect, how do we amplify each other, how do we empower each other. Um, so definitely, you know, uh, there was a sense of, like, it was needed. I felt it was so needed, especially in my local community. And um, hopefully, you know, this will continue, whether it's like a termly or a monthly thing where we meet and just have conversations. But I guess my next thing, part of this, you know, campaign, you know, I want to hold a panel discussion and bring, you know, policymakers, people who work in the health service, teachers, to talk about their experiences being Muslim in these sectors. And what does that mean? Um, and, you know, looking at Islamophobia, not just because we're Muslim women wearing a hijab, but what does it mean to be a Muslim woman wearing a hijab in your job? What does it mean to be a Muslim woman wearing a hijab if you're giving birth? You know, what does it mean to be a Muslim woman wearing a hijab when you're applying for a job? You know, these different aspects of our daily lives were were affected. Um, however, I do want to highlight there are there are people out there who are non-Muslim who want to understand this. I want to support, I want to make space. But sometimes they're afraid that they might do the or say the wrong thing. So I guess for me, it's like co-collaboration. I want to see more co-collaboration between Muslim people and organizations. So say, okay, let's do it this way. Um, and, I, I know, and I know I've worked with organizations that ha- have, you know, have been a bit afraid to, to do things like this, but when they did it, they were so proud. They were like, yes, we want to do more of this. Yeah, I think that's so important. But is it that we need to make ourselves more available to these organisations to say, look, I'm here, I'm ready to help? Or is it that these organisations need to build the confidence to reach out and say, this is what we want to do. How do we get there? Mm, it's a difficult one because I guess it's not about us doing all the work um, because organisations have that infrastructure whether it's they have an engagement team or... But I guess it's about saying that we are available to have that conversation and not close off from it. Because, you know, I grew up with a bit of anger and I would always resent everything. Like, no, I had a trust issue, like, in terms of, like, what are people's intentions? Are gonna... But I guess when I grew up and I'm working in the sector, there are genuinely non-Muslims who genuinely want to make space, but they just don't know how to. So I guess for me, it's about, you know, it's individual ex- experience, definitely. But I, from my own experience, I definitely think it's a two-way relationship sometimes. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's organisations have to pull their weight. Um, but I guess for me, it's about saying, opening your arms and be like, yes, we are available to have that conversation. Um, yeah, and I think moving forward, you know, that could be a really very, a very, you know, bright future, like, the one that we can like pave a positive one for our children i think with obviously the waves of immigration and how we're coming to like second third generation um british muslim identities i think by now a lot of us feel like we should be accepted for who we are we we don't deserve the stares that we get 
in the comments that are thrown at us. But how do we actually make ourselves part of this world that we live in? How do we ask people to accept us? I think it's about accepting yourself first. Like, you know, if you accept yourself first and you build yourself as a resilient and, you know, confident and and then I guess people will see that. But I also think I know that there are a lot of generations that are still healing from past traumas of colonization and generation trauma and I think it's not easy for me to say oh yeah just you know move on and no so I guess what I'm trying to say is we need like power parallel things to work at the same time so when we are creating sessions about resilience and building and empowering we also need to create sessions around healing and taking time off and you know taking it easy um because there are so much so many complex things but definitely like it's about accepting yourself first you know and I said this right at the beginning self-belief you know I work with a lot of Muslim young people and especially those from marginalized groups and the self-belief and the lack of expression that I see is so so huge and you know I really want to tackle that and I really want to build the confidence of our young people um and I understand you know they they're young people they've they've just faced a pandemic and they've got exams the world's a bit confusing they're accessing the online world more than ever of course it's confusing so definitely I you know um we have you know we have a lot of work to do but i also think that this is also a non-muslim thing too when non-muslim organizations and people around us need to become allies as well especially those who talk about diversity and equality and equity (laughs) i think those words kind of have just become buzzwords inclusivity diversity equity and equality and all of these things I feel like sometimes they're just buzzwords that are thrown in to make it seem as though we're making the effort you're not making the effort and I find that quite scary because how long will we have those words around us and then for them to be thrown out of the window because we're not making the effort to step forward it's it's good to have them words but I think organisations need to actually accept inclusivity and actually understand what that means because it was quite ironic last year. Um, I started this new company and we got a Christmas hamper through the post and mine had a big bottle of champagne in it. And then the following morning, I got an email in my inbox saying, um, what do you think of the company's diversity and inclusion policy? And I just found it so ironic. The day before I received a bottle of champagne and now I'm being asked about the company's diversity and inclusion policy. Mm. Now, surely by this point, you should be able to put two and two together that we might have some Muslim employees who don't drink. So should we take that into consideration? I mean, I mean, the whole drinking culture is interesting because there are there is a big movement now where people are becoming sober who are non-Muslim. So even mm. if we are talking about diversity and inclusion, even Muslim or non-Muslim, you know alcohol anyway like is a big it's a big discussion now because there's a lot of people who are recovering addicts mm. so even that is dangerous you know giving someone a it's you know what, what how how difficult will, will it be to ask someone you know these are three options for the gift which one would you prefer yeah you know and 
equality and diversity, you know, it's not just about, okay, let's just assume, because there are Muslim people that drink too. So it's not just based on assumption, but it's also like making it accessible. And that can only be done if we ask the right questions. Um, access is a big thing for me right now, and especially because I'm really interested in neurodiversity. And when I am working with young people who are vulnerable, I look at like, okay, how do I, because, you know, writing is not for everyone. So I try and bring different activities and different kind of like accessible um, writing exercises that other young people can use. That assumption that we can make easily about people when, when, okay, I've got three things, which one would you like to do? But I think as most, and I will say this, right, and, you know, statistics prove this, Muslim women, especially who wear the hijab, are probably one of the, you know, marginalised groups right now in the UK when it comes to unemployability, when it comes to, you know, um, you know, just even visibility, narrative. Um, and I guess I really want to see more of a kind of like force um, where people are using social media to talk about that. Because, you know, one day, you know, right now, you know, other European countries are banning Muslim women from wearing the hijab, right? Mm. Tomorrow, it could be like, you know, banning you from wearing a long skirt. The second day could be banning you from, I don't know, reading the Quran. The fourth one. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is when people are allowed to use law, and use it against you to kind of like restrict you from actually your full identity of your faith, then anything is possible. When we look at any genocide or any injustice that has ever occurred, it all all started from a thought or an idea of hate Mm. of the other. So I guess for me, you know, for my Muslim women who are listening to this, to say, look, I know sometimes, you know, we live in our comfortable places of, you know, our communities and our homes and we go to work and we go home and we're not, we don't see the effect of the Islamophobia sometimes. But really, when we look at laws, you know, these are being pushed, pushed even more every single year. So I guess I'm trying to say is like, wake up. Because, you know, this year it might be banning the hijab from workplaces. Tomorrow it might be banning the hijab on the streets. So... Yeah. You know, and I, and I guess for me, it's like, you know, it, this is serious. <laughs> it's, it's serious and it's affecting many, many women, maybe not in the UK, but across Europe, definitely. Yeah, I think it's so important to get Muslim women to fight their fight at this point. I think we've let other people fight it for too long or we've let other people take control of the reins and the narrative that comes with it. But I think it's time for us to wake up and kind of, make ourselves feel uncomfortable to show that actually we're stronger than you think we are and we have that resilience and we have that ability to create change and I don't think we're seeing enough of that of course and I think it's it's a bit overwhelming like what can you do do you mm. shout do you scream and this is why I think moving forward with hijab ski- speaks you know the campaign that I I'm starting to plan, you know, and I'm thinking we need a panel discussion where we bring Muslim people who are experts, you know, and actually give us the statistics, tell us what to do, give us a toolkit. I'm hoping that, you know, we can create a toolkit 
you know or like you know how do you protect yourself as a muslim woman yeah uh, what are the laws around it what could, you know what are your rights how do you exercise your rights you know and i guess that for me is like like i say you know play the game understand how your environment is structured understand mm-hmm. how who who makes these decisions you know when you when you go into a retail shop and you want to you know make a complaint you always ask for the supervisor or the manager you never speak to the you know the person at the front you always say i want to mm-hmm. speak to your supervisor because you know that that supervisor holds more power so that's the same thing politically you know i'd go to my councillor but really i want to go to my mp i want to go to them you know the high court <laughs> i think we can i think firstly let's get together let's speak more let's empower each other let's be kinder to each other we are in a very similar battle every single day when we leave our homes many yeah. muslim women don't return home many muslim women come home and they are physically and verbally abused many muslim women lose self-esteem and self-confidence because of people's remarks this affects muslim women every single day and until we really accept what that means and i hope i really really hope that in the future we have statistics about well-being around muslim women because i would say now like because muslim women are just seen, you know, as they get on with their family homes and we have a very strong unit most of the time with our families. What, what is our psychology like, you know? You know, I'd love to read more about that. Um, but yeah, so... Before you get off, I just wanted to ask you, if there's any advice we need to give to a young hijab-bearing girl today, what would that be? I think it's everything I said before, but, but to, to add on that, I would say really, you know, your journey is yours right as as a muslim woman regardless it's your journey and that journey is is a place that you know best right however you know as a muslim woman you know who if you decide to wear the hijab or not is really start to think about you know what is your relationship with the hijab why are you wearing it and but also understand that you know there are muslim women who are going through similar things too so like reach out to each other like don't be afraid to not reach out to each other um because we can't we can't face this all on our own sometimes also i just want to say like celebrate too like i don't know but you always get this narrative that muslim women who wear the hijab their features come out more and they look really beautiful um like celebrate the hijab celebrate like one of the questions we asked the women when we did the workshop was, what's your favorite hijab? My favorite hijab has a hole in it. <laughs> like, it literally has a hole in it, but I love it because it's just got like, it's the way it sits on my head and I don't want to throw it away. And it's got a hole in it. And I've got other hijabs to wear, but I just love that one. So for me, it's about let's, let's laugh about it. Let's share stories and celebrate too. It's not all doom and gloom. We're, we're, you know, most women that wear the hijab are wearing it by choice. So let's celebrate that choice, that our democracy of hijab, you know? <laughs> yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. No, no problem. Thank you so much for having me and listening to me. <laughs> no, I really appreciate it. You've got such a wealth of knowledge and 
I think I always struggle when I speak to older people. I just think, oh my God, they know so much in comparison to me. Like I'm just a little baby here. But no, I really love what you had to say. And I think it's so important. I think the listeners are going to really appreciate it as well. I know. Thank you so much. And you know what? Age does not discriminate. I think, you know, we're here to learn from each other. So thank you. No worries. I'll let you get off. Assalamu alaikum. Masalama. I just want to say a huge thank you to each and every one of you before we end this episode. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your support. And I recently saw my Spotify wrapped and I watched it back and I cannot believe the amount of success we've had. I started in August. At the start of August, I put the first episode together. It took me two weeks to get it up. So August, September, October, November, December, five months of hijabi culture. And we're already creating more content than 70% of people in our category. And we've got listeners from the UK and it stems all the way to Uzbekistan, Bulgaria, Belgium, Mauritius, Greece, Botswana, Sri Lanka. And I just can't thank you so much for what you've done to get hijabi culture off the ground. So thank you a hundred times for believing in my dream and for listening along. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at hijabiculture underscore. And if you've got friends, families, people in parts of the world that I didn't mention, family in Poland, Serbia, get them to follow and listen to Hijabi Culture. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and the Anchor app. I'm Halima and this is Hijabi Culture. Once again, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Assalamu alaikum.